Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Hosea, chapter 10. Hosea, chapter 10. We're going to look at the entire chapter this evening. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. For now they say, we have no king, but because we did not fear the Lord... And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf at Beth-Avon. For its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also the high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity uh, did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow, Judah shall plow, Jacob shall break his clods. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You have eaten their fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way, in the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered, as Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we know that there are many atrocities that happen in this world, and there are many sins that we still struggle with in our own hearts, and we know that uh, one wicked thought is enough to damn a sinner to hell forever. We know that one uh, uh, sin sowed in wickedness is enough to be plucked up and burned forever, and we are yet thankful for Christ Jesus, who is the true vine. We are thankful that we've been plucked out of that field of wickedness and been placed in that field of righteousness. We are thankful that we are engrafted into the root who is Christ. We are engrafted into the true vine who is Christ, and it's through him that we grow. And so we ask and pray as a people redeemed, as a people changed, as a people who've been given new life. We ask and pray that we would sow in the spirit and reap in the spirit, that we would sow in the word and reap in the word, that we would sow in Christ and reap in Christ, that our minds would be attentive to the things of you, that our minds would ever be reformed to your word, to know it well, to trust it, to to believe what your word says, and also know that you work in us 
as we grow, as the, the, so the seeds of righteousness, as the, uh, uh, the growth is cultivated. And we're thankful that you cultivate it in us, but we ask that we would have a holy zeal to cultivate it in ourselves according to your ways. As a people redeemed, as a people changed, we pray that we would love to love the things you love. And we ask and pray that you'd forgive us for the times we don't, and we're thankful that Christ Jesus is sufficient. His finished work is sufficient, and we're thankful that he even intercedes for us even now. So we ask and pray that you'd watch over us. We ask and pray that you'd send forth your spirit to understand some difficult things that are going on here. And we're thankful that all scripture is God-breathed, even the blessed prophets of the Old Testament. Thank you for what they look ahead to. Thank you for the lessons we can learn now. And we know that we need your spirit to help us with this. So please work in us. Please reap mercy in us. Please cause us to grow and to bear fruit that is becoming of those who are part of the true vine. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've read your Bible lots, you know that there are many agricultural images that speak about the growth of a Christian, especially the language of bearing fruit. Are the people of God growing in the things of God? Are the people of God growing in the knowledge of God? Are the people of God growing in how they live their lives? This is all described by bearing fruit. Bearing fruit, becoming of the children of God. Bearing fruit, becoming of those who are like a tree planted by living waters. Are we growing in knowledge and are we growing in the things of God? And our foundation as we grow is not in ourselves, but our foundation is the root that we are connected to. Our foundation is in Christ, who is the true vine in whom we are truly rooted. Now, this is a comfort for the new covenant people. And the opposite is true for the old covenant people. Because the old covenant people, based upon the terms of that old covenant, which was not a covenant of salvation, it was not eternal life is never held out, but the people had to earn their way. The people had to do what is right in the sight of God, but the people did not do that. They were rooted in their own sin. The people were planted and they found they were planting in fields of wickedness rather than in fields of righteousness. They are a dying plant. They are a a diseased root. They do not bear fruit. And as such, they must be burned. They must be judged. They must be removed. And this is evidenced by their divided heart. They want to worship God and receive the blessings from God, but they also want to worship Baal and receive the blessings of Baal. But in reality, as they have this divided heart, the reality is they are following in their own way. This is something that has recurred often throughout the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea comes on the scene around the 8th century, one of the first prophets. Uh, He's prophesying to the northern kingdom during the time of the divided kingdom. So he prophesies to uh, Israel in the north, but there is some application for Judah in the south as well. And the people have continually not honored God. The people have continually not worshipped God aright. And that has been evidenced and manifested not just in their worship, but also in their lives as well. What they think about authorities what they think about others, what their word means to them and how they're so uh, quick to say something but do something very different. Wickedness abounds. They are a diseased tree. They are a diseased plant and they are not bearing fruit and they must be dealt with. We see this in their spiritual adultery. We see this in their idolatry and certainly Hosea's Marriage is a picture of what Israel has done, what Israel has done to God Most High, this loving husband, this kind one who plucked them and saved them and chose them, and yet they continually commit 
adultery. So we see what God is going to do in judgment, but there's also encouragement when it comes to what he's going to do in restoration as well. And so we're in that section that deals with a forgetful people. I must confess, it's been a long section as we've gone through it. There's a lot of warning. There's a lot of scolding. There's a lot of harsh words through chapter 6 through 10. And we finally, we come to some hope in verses 11 and 12, but it has been a bit of a long slog. We've seen how there are fair weather people. They're as faithful as a cloud. We see that they have words, but they're just dis- disintegrate. We see how they're ignorant, how they're unaware. They don't see that what they're doing is wrong. They don't see their wickedness. We've seen their idolatrousness. We've seen their wickedness. We've seen how they still try to worship God, but they do so in an ignorant way. They think that they have a time of reprieve. Let's worship, but they still don't worship in a way that is pleasing to God. And so we've seen throughout how they're going to be excluded, how they're going to be kicked out of the land. They're going to be vomited out of this promised land. And so we see a lot of the same issues recur here for us, but with chapter 9, or the latter part of chapter 9, we see these images that are used to describe Israel. We saw how they were once grapes in the wilderness, this choice uh, oasis that God had found, that God cultivated, that God uh, uh, chose. And then we saw how they go from the wilderness and that receive blessing, and then now they go back into wandering. And then today we see other images as well. We see how they are luxuriant vine, and we see how they are a stubborn but also a trained heifer. And the problem that I think we see in these verses is the problem of when sin is cultivated, when sin is tilled, when the seeds of sin are sown in in soil and shallow soil, and what is produced but wickedness, what is produced but iniquity, what is produced but sin. A heart that is rooted in the soil of sin will only continually grow more sin upon sin. And as that sin continues to grow, that is only storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And what we need then is a heart that is plucked from the field of wickedness and a heart that is rooted and planted in a field of righteousness. We need a heart that is rooted and engrafted in the one who is the true vine. And so in Hosea chapter 10, we, uh, chapter 10, we see the Lord likens Israel's sinfulness to a vine that doesn't bear fruit. They are a people that claim to worship. They're people that claim to be religious. But in reality, we know them by their fruit. In reality, we know them by what they do, not by what they say, but what their worship is like, what their lives are like. We see that their hearts are not ones filled with righteousness, but ones that are full of of wickedness. And so there's a lot of agricultural imagery here that kind of, uh, not, they're not quite exact. We see the image of a vine, we see the image of a field, and we see the image of a calf used to describe the spiritual state of Israel. So the calf is in view, the field is in view, the vine is in view, and it will certainly go between all these different images that God uses in Hosea chapter 10. And so we'll look at this idea of Israel's sinfulness, as sinful as a vine, as a, as a people who sow in a field of wickedness, we'll look at it under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a field of weeds, verses 1 through 8, and then secondly, we'll see a field of righteousness in verses 9 through 15. So a field of weeds, verses 1 through 8, and then a field of righteousness, verses 9 through 15. 
So let's first look at a field of weeds in verses 1 through 8, and we specifically see that weed-filled field in verses 1 through 4. And notice we see that fruit imagery used once again. We saw how Israel were like grapes in the wilderness. We, that referred to the, the, their being brought up of the land of Egypt and God walking with them and guiding them as they wandered for 40 years. God provided for them. But we saw even then, we see that they have a spirit of idolatry. They went to Baal Peor and that spirit of Baal Peor still remains even in the people many years later. The spirit of idolatry, the spirit of wickedness, the spirit of spiritual adultery. And so we have this image again here in chapter 10, verse 1, this image of a vine, this image of a vine that should bear fruit. And that seems to be what is in view here. Israel empties his vine. This isn't necessarily used in a so-called negative way, but a vine grew in clusters. A vine grew quickly. And so what it seems to indicate is Israel's quick growth. What it seems to indicate is as, as the vine is emptied, what happens is it becomes more luxuriant as it reproduces, as the seeds uh, uh, replicate, as the seeds pass on. And so it seems to indicate material growth. God did give Israel many times of prosperity. God gave Israel many times of prosperity. They gave, uh, gave Israel time of prosperity under Solomon. And as the book of Hosea starts, Jeroboam II Economic prosperity was in the land. The people had many good things, and yet the people still worshipped Baal rather than Yahweh. And so Israel is this vine. Israel themselves is called a vine in Psalm 80. This vine that God has chosen, this vine that God is going to restore. We have the vineyard songs that we see in Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27. In Isaiah 5, it talks about Yahweh who plants this vineyard. Yahweh who tills this vineyard, but yet we see that the vineyard bears no fruit. The vineyard only bears thorns and thistles. Israel, those vineyard songs are songs of judgment. But we see in Psalm 80 verse 8, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river that it, uh, it spread. There was uh, prosperity, economic growth and expansion. But why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The board of the woods uproots it and the wild beast of the field devours it. Talking about a time when Israel is going to go into captivity. She's going to be that vineyard that is plucked up because she does not bear fruit. And we certainly see that language in Isaiah 5 as, as well, what Yahweh has done. But what we see here is that Israel is functioning as this vine that grows. But the reality is, as she grows, as she replicates, so too does her idolatry. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars." prosperity should have led to thanksgiving prosperity should have led to them being more aligned with Yahweh but notice what it does it makes man complacent riches make man complacent riches in themselves are not necessarily a sin but you can see why people become complacent we don't need God 
We have all these things. We have this house. We have all this money in the bank. We don't need to worry about these things. Why do I need Yahweh? Why do I need God? Why do I need these things? Unless you want more of it. And so they feel like they got more of it from Baal and from whoever they could. They, their riches became their idol. They began to serve mammon instead of God. And they could do whatever they wanted to do, whatever they wanted to do in order to get more mammon. And so as they increase, they think, well, maybe we should just worship more. Maybe we should just make more places of worship. Let's just be more religious and see if that works. Now, remember Deuteronomy chapter 12. God chose one place where his temple would be. God chose one place where worship was supposed to take place. And that eventually became what? Jerusalem. What's the problem of the divided kingdom? They don't want to go to Jerusalem, lest they defect to Judah, lest they defect to the south. That's why Jeroboam I set up rivals to Jerusalem, rivals to the place of worship. And as they did that, no wonder we read that all the kings in Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord. And one of the key factors is they cannot worship God aright because they cannot go to the place that God had chosen, according to Deuteronomy chapter 12. They were a religious people, but notice how unaware they are in their religion. Wealth only increased their idol worship. It increased in worshiping things that are just made of wood. And so notice what Yahweh is going to do. Notice what happens to them as they increase in idolatry. We do see things that decrease. We see a decreased submission to authority, whether God or king. And notice it starts with a divided heart. There's an increase in idolatry, but a decrease in submission to God and king. And it starts with that divided heart. Verse 2, their heart is divided. Their heart, uh, they want to serve God and mammon. God says, you must worship me alone. You must praise me alone. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and Baal. You cannot serve God and Asherah. You cannot serve God and Brahmin. You cannot serve God and insert anything in there. You cannot serve God in your phone. You cannot serve God in notoriety. You cannot serve God in your spouse. Yeah, we can serve ours. You get what I'm saying, right? Spouses can be idols. That happens. Good things become bad gods. And certainly we can serve God by loving our spouses. But if we make our spouse the idol, that's a problem, isn't it? Anything that takes the place of God becomes an idol. Anything that takes the place of who God is and allegiance to him is an idol. And for them, it was mammon. For them, it was we want to get as much as we can. We want fertile land we want fruitful, chill, uh, fruitful families, and we want lots of things. And so they tried to do that any way they could. Their heart became divided in that very thing. And the result of this divided heart is their guilt. Now, they are held guilty. They are not righteous before God. They are guilty before the judgment seat of God. He will then break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. Those ones that they increased, they shall be no more. And so they have a divided heart, but notice they have disrespect for their kings, verse 3. Not that their kings were great, but verse 3. For now they say we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. It might be the case that as they go into captivity, they recognize, yeah, we, we did not fear the Lord. We did not trust in him. 
I, there's some difficult things in chapter 10 that are hard for me to understand, and the commentators are divided on such things, but probably what is going on here is that they have no respect for their king. We have no king. It's not that there wasn't a king in Israel. It's just they had no respect for him. And as we see, as the kings go, so the people go. But as the people go, they become just like their kings. And their kings were corrupt. Their kings despised. Their kings only cared about themselves. And guess what happens? Well, the people begin to care about themselves only. So much so they disregard their kings. And as for a king, well, what would he do for us? The leadership doesn't care. The people don't care. And perhaps it could be during a time where there were a bunch of assassinations going on. You know, after Jeroboam II, there was stability under Jeroboam II, at least politically, not spiritually. But there was a succession. It was like one king reigned six months, one king reigned one month. I mean, there's this, you know, assassinations that are occurring. So it does seem like there is no king, one that they could respect. And so what's a king? For now they say we have no king. God is going to remove that king. God is going to take them away. But the people have disrespect for the, that very office. So they have disrespect for their kings, but notice they also have disregard for the truth. There's a decrease. You see that? They increase in idolatry and they decrease in certain things. They decrease in worship for God, true worship. They have disrespect for their king and they also have a disregard for the truth. They speak words. It's just words. All sizzle, no steak. They have spoken words, but they swear falsely in making a covenant. Their word is not their bond. They say things to get things. They have just do in word and not in word and in deed. We see they have disregard for what is said. This is what we call hypocrites. People who say something and walk in a very, in another way. And so what happens is judgment springs up. This is where we see that field language. This judgment springs up like a hemlock, like a weed, like a poisonous uh, uh, plant in the furrows of the field, in the grooves where the seeds are supposed to go. We are supposed to see fruit. Where we're supposed to see growth. What is sown is judgment. What is sown is wickedness. What is put into those grooves that are supposed to be watered aren't the seeds of righteousness, but they're the seeds of wickedness. And what happens? You have a field filled with wickedness. You have a field filled with judgment. You have a field filled with weeds. So they are a weed-filled field because of what they sow and reap. But also notice we see that they are a cursed calf in verses 5 through 8. And we see it in their mourning. We see that in their response to God destroying the thing that they love. God destroys their idols. And we see this in verses 5 through 8 as we transition or I guess move from that field vine imagery to this calf imagery. And we see, verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria fear because the calf of Beth-Avon. Now remember, in Bethel, this is where Jeroboam set up these golden calves. Samaria is the capital. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. But there, the place of worship was Bethel. Beth-Avon is a bit of a dig. <laughs> it's a bit of a derogatory term. It, Bethel should mean house of God, but in reality became what? Avon means wickedness, house of wickedness. They were once a house of God, now they're a house of wickedness. So in a lot of ways, we see some irony here from the prophet to cause the people to stop and think and to cause us now as readers to stop and think and examine ourselves. The inhabitants of Samaria 
Fear because of the calf of Beth Avon. Similar to that golden calf that we see in Exodus 32, it's similar to that. We see this one that rivals, this one is meant to take the place of God as the people tried to worship God through the golden calf. That's why the first and second commandment, we need to understand the distinction. The first commandment, you have no other gods before me. That is who we worship, God. The second commandment is don't make for yourself false idols is how we worship. Because what the people were doing is setting up the golden calf and saying, look, this is Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's why right worship is important. That's why understanding what God wishes in his worship is absolutely crucial in the old covenant, according to old covenant ways, and in the new covenant, according to new covenant ways as well. And so the inhabitants, they fear, they're concerned, and notice what they're fearful of, and this is where it gets funny. For its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it. And the language of priests here is not the typical word for priests. It's used for idolatrous priests. It's used of priests of other nations, ones who worshipped false gods. That's what Israel's become like. Notice they're shrieking. They're concerned about their golden calf as it goes away. They're concerned about their idol. They're more concerned about their idol than they are of God. That is a serious thing. It, the irony, the humor, the mocking of God. God is mocking them with this. Look at these people. Look how insane they're acting. Look how they're functioning, bowing before a golden calf. Because it is insanity, isn't it? All of sin is insanity, isn't it? All of idolatry is insanity, isn't it? And one thing we are supposed to do and one of the re things that we need to take away from things that are funny and things that are ironic is to ask ourselves, are we as insane as they are? Are we as ridiculous as they are? And brethren, many times we are. Let's be honest. Many times we can be as ridiculous as they are when it comes to how we live. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need to gather. That's why we need to be in the word of God. That's why we need to grow in fertile soil in Christ. Because we have to be careful. We have to smash our idols. We have to smash them at the feet of Christ. So we're not mourning for our idols. They mourn for it. The priests shriek for it because its glory has departed from it. It's going to be carried away. They sought counsel from it, but they didn't get any, did they? It's just wood. You know, if you saw, saw someone talking to a tree as you're walking down the street, you would think that person's just a little bit bonkers. That's what idolatry is, talking to a tree, <laughs> talking to wood, talking to silver. How ridiculous are we? How ridiculous is that? Our hearts are like idol factories. Consider what we once were, how we loved those things. And thanks be to God for Christ, who's shown us our sin, shown us how wicked we can be, and that it's in him we are engrafted. It's in him that we grow. It's in him that there is life. That's why the old and the new, we must understand and relate in how they relate to one another, how they're the continuity of the old and the new and the discontinuity, what the old could not do and what the new does in the blood of Christ and the blood of the lamb. The people loved their golden calf. And their idol is going to be carried away to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. We saw King Jerob in chapter 5. Remember, we talked about how we don't necessarily know who that is. Jerob can mean contend or great. 
But the point is in chapter 5, verse 13, Ephraim does not go to God for help, do they? They go to Assyria. They go to the king who's ruling over all the, the superpower at that time. They sought him for help. And now notice what happens. The one in whom they sought help is the one God is going to use to subject them. Their idol is going to be carried away. Their idol, and usually in ancient Near Eastern warfare, when an idol was carried, was when a nation was conquered, they would take their idols of the gods they conquered and bring them to the house of their god as a sign of subjection. Our god is better than yours. Now it is true to some degree that uh, uh, ancient Near Easternly speaking, that King Jerob and the gods of Assyria were stronger than the gods of Israel, right? Because Israel is not worshiping the one true God, they're worshiping an idol. And to some degree, they were stronger. But in reality, we know better. There's only one true God. That's why in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we see Dagon bowing before Yahweh. As you know, Yahweh, the Ark of the Covenant, is carried into the land of the Philistines, we see Dagon bowing. We see Dagon's hands broken. We see Dagon having to be lifted up. Another funny passage, by the way. Oh, you have to go pick up your God and put him back. Oh, he's broken his arms. That's awful, isn't it? Our God doesn't have arms, does he? <laughs> Our God does not need to be picked up. Our God picks us up, and our God chastens us so that we might see our need for him. And that's exactly what captivity does. Ephraim shall receive shame. Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. That's that idea of talking to a tree, the idea of talking and seeking counsel from an idol. How ridiculous and how silly man is in his idolatry. And so... We see Samaria is mourning over this calf. They've become this cursed calf in a lot of ways. And we see how her king is going to be removed. They didn't really like their king anyway, but the king is going to be taken. Verse 7. As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Like a splinter on the water. The image here is the idea of a river. And so they're just like a splinter on the river. And a splinter has no power against a river. It's just going to be carried away. She's got no power. Israel's got no power. The king in Israel has no power. She is going to be cut off because God is going to judge them for the wickedness that they have engaged in. He's going to destroy their wickedness. Their king is taken away. They're going to be no more. The high places of Avon, the high place of wickedness, the sin of Israel, it shall all be destroyed. God must punish sin and God must destroy sin. And that's what we see here. In Old Covenant terms, we see that Israel did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so what he's going to do, he's going to vomit them out of the land. We see reversals here again. They raised up altars, they raised up pillars, but God is going to destroy them. The thorn and thistles shall grow on their altars. The place where they thought that they could grow, the place that they, the place that they built based upon the growth that they had economically, are going to be places of cursing. And thorn and thistle should draw our attention back to where? Genesis 3.18. How does Adam work? What's the curse upon Adam in the working that he works? Thorn and thistle. And so our mind is drawn back there again to the idea of cursing and the cursing that sin brings. Their thorns, the thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall see wickedness. They thought they tried hard, didn't they? They were trying hard in their worship. Their hearts were in it. But their hearts were wicked. And their hearts were vile. And their hearts were all wrong. It was all wrong because they tilled and cultivated in sinful soil. 
And now what's going to happen is going to be judgment. And notice, they'd rather die than face the Lord. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. They want the mountains to save them from the terror of the Lord. They want the mountains. It's better to die than to face the judgment that is to come. And certainly this is judgment on Israel by Assyria. We see that in Israel's history by Assyria in 722 B.C., And we see judgment on Judah by Babylon in 586 or 87 B.C. And we also see judgment upon Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70 as well. God judges the old covenant people because they did not and cannot keep the old covenant. They could not keep it. And remember, it was all about life in the land. The old covenant, their salvation is never held out. They cannot keep it. And God thus then will judge them according to the terms. And remember, as we've read in Deuteronomy, as we've seen in Joshua, they said, we'll do it. We got it. They agreed to it, didn't they? Same too in Exodus. They're like, yes, Lord, we'll do all that you say. What happens like eight chapters later in Exodus 32? Here they are bound before the golden calf. Man in his own ways, man in his own heart is desperately wicked. And as Calvin says, our hearts are filled with idol factories. I think what we see here is what happens when sin is cultivated. What will happen to those who live in sin, those who are born in sin, who have that heart that has not been changed? Sin cultivates sin. Sinful root bears sinful root. And if you are not in Christ, you have that sinful root and are part of a sinful field and you will be plucked, you will be tilled, and you will be burned. There are those who might claim to love Christ, but deny him and have no regard for him. We we know them by their fruits. Fruits are an evidence that we believed on Christ. If we love the things of God, not perfectly, we're growing in the things of God, not perfectly, but we can be assured that we are of Christ. If you have no love for the church, no love for doing the things that God loves, then I would ask you, I would implore you to not try harder, but to believe on Christ to look to him for mercy and forgiveness for your wickedness because there's mercy and forgiveness in him because where cultivated sin leads is to what we see in verse 8. And there are three places, I think, in the New Testament that speak, that are alluded, that allude back to Hosea 10. The first place is Luke 23. All referring to Israel as a nation, the old covenant After they broke it, God certainly restored them, but even that restoration was not complete. They still needed a king. And as that king comes, he brings in the new, which is what Jeremiah prophesied. And so to make way for the new, the old has to be done away with, which is what happens in AD 70. The old covenant is no more. And so Jesus says as much as he's making his way to the cross in Luke 23. We see these multitude of women who are mourning and lamenting. And notice the words of Jesus. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. The Israelites are putting Jesus to death by way of Pilate. For indeed, the days are coming. There's probably implicit reference to Jesus' innocence. Jesus has done nothing wrong, and yet he is dying in the stead of sinners by wicked sinners who hate him. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover for us. 
For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Jesus recognized that judgment is coming and judgment is going to be so terrifying, it'd be better if the mountains fall, it fell upon them. That's what the day of judgment is going to be like for those that are not in Christ. It is what Israel's destruction in AD 70 points to. It's what Israel's destruction by Assyria in 722 BC points to. It's what Babylon or Jerusalem's destruction by Babylon in 586 points to. They're all types of the final judgment. And we see the final judgment in Revelation 6 and Revelation 9. These are the two other places I think this is alluded to. In Revelation 9, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. That's how terrifying judgment is. They will desire, desire to die and death will flee from them. But we see in 6.16, again, I believe this is talking about the final judgment when Christ comes back. There was a great earthquake and the sun, moon became black, verse 12, as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood, all judgment language. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb taking what is a, uh, mentioned in Hosea 6 or Hosea 10 and applying in Revelation 6 to Jesus and his coming the lamb who sits on the throne the wrath of the lamb think about that image for a moment a lamb is meant to be cuddly and the lamb is meant to be innocent. But here is the innocent lamb who was slain and his wrath. And the kings of the earth are afraid of him. When he comes, those who are not in Christ, we see this language, fall on us and hide from us the face of him. For those that are in Christ, the face of the lamb is going to be a wonderful thing. For those not in Christ, it's going to be an absolutely terrifying thing. We see the destruction of Mankind, we see where sin leads, cultivated sin leads, but we can also highlight what a sinner then does need. A sinner needs a vine rooted in righteousness where we can grow, and that's in Christ Jesus. He is the one who causes us to grow in a field of righteousness, which is what we see in verses 9 through 15. So that was a field of weeds. Now let's see a field of righteousness in verses 9 through 15. And I do think in verses 9 through 11, we see a chastened calf, a learned calf, a learned calf, a learned heifer. Same language, heifer, calf, same words used in verse 5 and verse 11. But notice we still have Israel as a stubborn calf, referring to Gibeah again, just like we saw in chapter 9, verse 9. Gibeah, that is where the Levite and his concubine came and all the men of Gibeah began to look like Sodom and Gomorrah. They wanted to know the Levite. They wanted to know him carnally. And so what happens is he gives the concubine. The concubine is destroyed. Uh, the concubine is terrible things happen to her. And uh, she is sent, uh, her body parts are sent to all the parts of Israel, different tribes, and a civil war erupts because of their wickedness. They became just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But... So there they stood, there they rebelled, but there were some who saw this and responded, said, this cannot happen in Israel. There seemed to be 
an outrage, a seemed to be a holy zeal, but that zeal did not last forever. They're like seed sown in, dry, in um, shallow soil. It springs up quickly, but the sun burns down upon it. It shrivels up. And so Gibeah, here they go. Or, uh, the nation is going to against Gibeah, engage in a civil war. Let's root out wickedness. But it does not last. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. Their zeal for holiness and righteousness did not overtake them. But righteousness only continued, or uh, unrighteousness only continued to abound. Same sin, same stubborn, stiff-necked people who are a stubborn calf. That's why we need the Lord to chasten. And I do think in verses 10 through 11, I think talking about talking in a, uh, Hosea is talking in a positive way. Some are say that it's a negative way, but I think it's positive. What God is going to do, how God is going to chasten, how God is going to teach. Verse 10, when it is my desire, the Lord's desire, I will chasten them. Things are going to happen in the Lord's timing. And we see that Israel's chastening is going to come by way of captivity. See, Israel's chastening is going to come by way of being sent into captivity away from the promised land. And as God's redemptive history unfolds, we see the fulfillment of the restoration coming in Jesus Christ. But it'll be the Lord's timing. And notice captivity is in view. The people shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. They're going to be bound and sent away. Now, what does it mean, two transgressions? Uh, that's a difficult thing to understand. Perhaps it's talking about past and present sins, or it could be what they see with their eyes, the transgressions before their eyes, the things that they see, they're going to be bound up and they're going to recognize it is because of the things that they observe and see. That could be in view here. But in any case, they're going into captivity. And notice what Yahweh is going to do. He's going to train her. Ephraim has become or shall be a trained heifer, a trained calf. She's no longer going to be a stubborn calf. She's going to be a trained calf. And notice she's going to love to thresh the grain. We see that that's what calves typically did. That's what heifers did, according to Deuteronomy 25, 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain, as it helps thresh, as it helps the farmer. But we see that Israel did not do what she was supposed to do. She went other ways. She turned this way. She turned that way. She did not take the path she was supposed to, according to what the farmer said. But... In this case, Ephraim is going to be trained. She's going to love to thresh the grain. But then we see this difficult language, but I harnessed her fair neck. Some highlight that it could be him passing over their former sins, and now he's going to bring judgment. Or it could be the idea that he's going to put upon her a harness, and she's going to listen. She's going to yield. She's no longer going to be that stubborn calf who was going their own way, but the calf who has that neck placed on her without much of a fight. She will yield to her master. And notice she will then cultivate as well. She'll be trained. She'll love to thresh. She'll be harnessed. And she will do what she's supposed to do. And notice, not just Ephraim, but Judah and Jacob as well. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break up his clods. So we seem to be looking past the captivity we seem to be looking past a time, well, looking to a time when the nation is united again. And that comes in Christ Jesus, doesn't it? That comes in him. You see, the church is Israel, isn't it? 
The church is the people of God, according to Romans 9 and according to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are the people of the new covenant. We don't replace Israel. The church is Israel. Israel finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus, who is the head of the church, who is the true Israel, and we are in him. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. Now, Gil talks about both sides of verse 11. It could be negative, but also could be positive. And he refers to the positive when he comments on it, when he says, Ephraim being a teachable like a heifer who took hold of her fair neck and stroked it to encourage her and accustom her to the hand and to the yoke and then put the yoke of his law upon them had trained them up in his institutions and used also gentle methods to keep them in obedience and also set Judah to plow and Jacob to break the clods prescribed for them and employed them in good works in the duties of religion from whence answerable fruit might have been expected. So there's going to be a time after captivity when the people of God shall bear fruit and they shall notice be a field of righteousness. Verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness Reap in mercy, break up your fellow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. We finally come to some positive words. Again, verses chapter 6 through 10 has been long. There's been hard things to hear, difficult things to grasp. The tone of the passage has not been one of uplifting, but one of warning. But now here's some uplifting language. Sow in righteousness and reap in iniquity. This is a call to the people of Israel here. So return to this God. Yet we know they do not. And the fulfillment comes later on in Christ Jesus and those who are found in him. But this idea of righteousness is so the word. Know the word. Know what is pleasing to God and reap mercy that is found in him. How often have we seen throughout this book times when he does call the people to repentance. There's a lot of hard stuff we've seen. A lot of people like chapters one through. They look at God and how gracious he is to, 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 to allure a wicked, wicked wife. That is a wonderful picture, brethren, isn't it? Here's how wicked Israel is, and here's how gracious God is. Here's how wicked we were, and here's how good God is to us. Those pictures are good. But there's been a long slog here of difficult things to understand, and yet now we come and see that those who sow in righteousness, sow in Christ, shall reap the mercy of God. He shall break up that fallow ground, that ground that is but clay. It is time to seek the Lord while he may be found. It is time to seek the one in whom there is mercy. Remember the names of Hosea's children? No, no mercy. And now those who had no mercy shall receive mercy according to Hosea chapter 2. And again here, the people of God in Christ Jesus shall reap in mercy according to God's ways, according to God's laws, according to God's word. Seek the Lord, look to him by faith till he comes and notice rains righteousness upon you. He refreshes you. He refreshes you with this language and this idea of refreshing is used to describe the messianic era in Christ Jesus. We've seen some of it in chapter 6. That positive, that last time we had that positive word, come and return to the Lord. He is torn and he is stricken. He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. The only place in the Old Testament refers to the three days in the grave and the third day rises again, that we may live in his sight. The only explicit uh, prophecy concerning it. 
But let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like a rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. He will come and bring us refreshment. He will come and cause us to grow and bear fruit. And that comes in Jesus Christ. And even then, dear brethren, we still await for his coming. He is causing us to grow now. He is bearing fruit in us now, but we long for the full refreshment of him when Christ comes again. He has come once. He refreshes. It's the time of the Messiah, the time of restoration, the time of refreshing. And we long for his coming again because the first and second coming are just two sides to the same event. The inauguration of the new heavens and new earth and the consummation of the new heavens and new earth. And we experience the new heavens and new earth now and we long for its consummation when Christ comes again. And so this field shall be a place where the people of God grow. Sow yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. It's a people rooted in the true vine. It's a people rooted and growing in he who is Christ. Rooted and abiding in Christ by faith, we shall bear fruit. And those who are not in Christ will be pruned by the vine dresser. This is the language we see in John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's going to prune those who are not his, and he's going to cause those who are his to grow. He's going to engraft the wild olive branch, which is what we read in Romans chapter 11, talking about the importance of faith in Christ, who is the root. And it doesn't matter whether one is ethnic Israel or not. You must believe upon Jesus Christ and be engrafted into him. And it's in him that we grow. It's in him that we are saved. It's in his field of righteousness that we can grow and flourish. That we can grow in our lives. Grow in the things of God. Till he comes and rains righteousness on you. So an encouraging word, but we have to go back to some negative stuff. Verses 13 through 15, a field of wickedness. But Israel, you, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. You trusted in what you thought was good rather than what God said is good. In the multitude of your mighty men, in the strength that you thought you had, you trusted in your thoughts rather than God's thoughts. And so what shall happen to Israel? Well, Israel is going to come to an end. Verses 14 and 15, they're going to be unsettled. Their tumult shall rise among your people. There's going to be concern. There's going to be an unsettledness. There's going to be no peace. There's going to be plundering. All your fortresses shall be plundered as Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle. A mother dashed in pieces upon her children. What is Shalman and what is Beth Arbel? We have no idea. Now, there was a king in Assyria called Shalmaneser, so some people think that it's something that he did to a place called Beth Arbel. But probably what it's referring to is a thing that Israel knew of, a place where atrocities occurred, a place where even pagans thought it's wrong, that you shouldn't do such a thing. That was in their minds. And what's going to happen to Israel as Shalman plundered Beth Arbel be in the day of battle, as you have engaged in wickedness, so shall these things come upon you like a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. There's some tough stuff in this, isn't there? In the prophet Hosea and some of the Psalms, there are difficult things for us, like we saw last time, and the bereaving and the, the miscarrying womb and the dry breast. These are difficult passages to deal with. 
But again, they teach us the seriousness of sin and where it leads. What shall happen to idolatry, what shall happen to Israel is something unspeakable like that happened at Shalman when Shalman plundered Beth Arbel. And the reason is, verse 15, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. Because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. They shall be cut away. They shall be removed. The covenant shall be no more because of their violations. The king of Israel shall be no more because they sowed a field of wickedness and they shall be cut off. Now, I want to end with some encouraging, hopefully encouraging application when righteousness is cultivated. Again, that righteousness comes in Jesus Christ. It's the righteousness that we have before the throne of God by way of justification. We are not guilty before the sight of God, but God also works in us that we might honor and glorify him. He implants in us a new principle in regeneration, and that new heart then flows forth in our sanctification, and sanctification flows out of our justification as well. If we are in Christ and we've been found in him, we have a righteousness not our own, and we are now the new man in Christ Jesus. And as such, we ought then to what? Cultivate righteousness. We ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm not saying you do it in your own power. I'm saying do it in the power that you have in Christ Jesus, the power that you have by the Holy Spirit. There is remaining corruption, but the root for us is not corrupt. Some of our branches are. When I did landscaping and we did tree pruning, the first thing we did was we cut off the dead branches because the concern was that those dead branches would then uh, move into the root. So the first thing we did was cut off the dead branches, but the root was still strong. Brethren, for the Christian, our root is always strong. Our root is always Christ, and it's always in him. We're just pruning the branches as we go. Christ himself is pruning the branches as we go. God himself is pruning those branches as we press on in this life. The Christian life is one of cutting off that those diseased branches. And so then how do we cultivate righteousness? How do we reap godly living? Well, it does require some spiritual effort, doesn't it? Notice I said spiritual effort. Notice in the Bible when they talk about prayer, when many of the apostles talk about prayer, especially in Colossians 4, Epaphras labored. Isn't praying hard? So what do we have to do? Labor or pray until you pray, as many have said. Let's be honest. If you're like me, you start to pray, then your mind starts to think of something else, and you have to bring it back, right? It requires work. It requires some spiritual effort. Reading the word of God thoughtfully requires what? Spiritual effort. It requires some focus. But these are the places that we cultivate these things. God has given us his word. God has given us the means of grace, which is what God does for us in his word to cause us to grow. It is the word. It is the visible word, baptism in the Lord's Supper. Prayer can become a means of grace when we pray God's words back to him. But isn't it a blessing to pray to God and God speaks to us and God works in us? But if we want to continue to grow in the field of righteousness, we have to grow in the things that Christ has given to us to grow. 
We are to work at our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to make our calling and election sure. We need to be listening to droning preachers who are going a little too long today. We need to get ready to hear said droning preachers who go a little too long today. And we need to labor in prayer and we need to press on. (laughs) Paul says that, doesn't he? Press on. Press on. Because it's hard. We're running that race. I've never ran a marathon. I did cross country, but it's hard to do. And we're thankfully can do it not in our own strength, but we do so in the strength of God. He's given us in his word. He has told us in his word where we can and should grow. And we'll close just by looking at one of those places, Galatians 5 and 6. Now remember with Galatians, he's writing to talk about, remind them of the true gospel. The true gospel is in Jesus Christ. Justification comes by faith and not by works, which some Judaizers were saying, you have to believe in Christ and be circumcised in order to be part of the new creation. But that doesn't mean that the people of God who start in the spirit and remain in the spirit, because once you start in the spirit, you only continue in the spirit, that we sow and reap according to the spirit. And so he does talk about in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, about how we ought to bear one another's burdens and You know, we ought to encourage and rebuke gently. Those things are important. We ought not to think highly of ourselves. Uh, Each one examine his own work, so that examining language, and he will rejoice in himself alone and not in another. Now, what's interesting, in verse 6, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So they see the importance of a pastor who teaches the people of God to encourage and nourish and provide the word. But then he does go on to talk about, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever man sows that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Not saying we earn our way, but he's again distinguishing between the flesh and the spirit and where everlasting life is. And he's just talked about in chapter five, the what? The fruit of the spirit. He's not um, unaware of the wrestling that God's people go through, the warring of the spirit and the flesh, but he's highlighting and recognizing how we walk. And how we walk is by the spirit. How we bear fruit is by the spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I love verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. And if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. How do we sow and reap in the spirit? Well, we sow and reap in the spirit as we are fed by the word of God. And some evidences of that spiritual fruit are what we see in chapter 5, verses 22, and what we see in all of chapter 5 and other places in scripture. But some ways that we can see the manifestation and evidence that we are growing is, A, we are in the word, because that is where we grow, and B, we start to see it happen in our lives. We start to pray and ask, Lord, I'm sometimes a little bit lazy. Could you help me just to be a little bit more focused? Lord, sometimes a little bit bitter at my boss. Could you please help me not be so embittered towards them? Lord, I'm a little angry at the government right now. Could you help me not be so angry? Lord, My children drive me nuts sometimes, and I need just a little bit of prayer to help me take a deep breath and deal with things properly. And you know what? The Lord is pleased to answer those prayers, isn't he? The Lord is pleased to help us 
We have to remember that. You know when he says you have not because you ask not? Sometimes we forget to ask. We forget to ask for help. And so sometimes we can see the spiritual fruit emerge in how we respond and how we act and how we live in our lives. We become more diligent and efficient in our work. Maybe instead of tearing people down all the time, we become more pleasant to be around because we're building people up. Or perhaps, again, we take a deep breath in a stressful situation rather than snapping right away. Or maybe we're more able to have self-control with our minds and words and actions. We don't always have to think. We have to say something. We are slow to speak and quick to listen. We're more able, not perfectly, but by the power of Christ to keep his commandments. And in our Christian life, dear brethren, the time we start to think that that commandment is getting under control, God is going to show us another commandment we need help in. (laughs) That's what he does for us. And then we grow, and we grow in that as well. We cultivate, we work, we, we see it more fruit as we're more forgiving of others, brethren. Brethren, we're harder on others and very forgiving of ourselves. It needs to be the opposite, doesn't it? I'm not saying we shouldn't forgive our, you know, recognize where our forgiveness comes from, but harder on ourselves, more forgiving of others. But it's usually the opposite. And so if we need help with that, the Lord is pleased to help us with that. And also, we need to be more aware of the forgiveness that we have in Christ if we fail. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all righteousness. He is the true vine. We are engrafted in him. If we have believed on Christ, we cannot be cut away. If we're not in Christ, if you claim to be in Christ, humanly speaking, and have not believed upon Christ, that can happen, but it would show that you were never part of the root to begin with. But if you believed on Christ, we rest in him. We rest in the root. We rest in that firm foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. And it's in him that we see a field of righteousness. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the things you teach us in the scriptures, even through some hard passages like Hosea chapter 10. We are thankful for all the warnings you've given. We are thankful for teaching us the seriousness of sin and where it leads and the judgment that comes because of it. But we're thankful for what you teach us concerning righteousness and who it is, who the one who is, uh, who is the one who is righteous and how we have a righteousness that is not our own. We are thankful that you justify us in your sight and we are thankful that you sanctify us as well that you are making us fit for heaven, that you are preparing us for that time that we shall grow like a vine because we are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the times we have grown. Thank you for the times we uh, have had a sin, um, its temptations be less and less. Thank you for the times where sins and temptations go away. And thank you for the times that as you teach us other sins that we do have and remind us of our need for you, you do so kindly. You chasten us, you discipline us, you show us what we need and who we need, and that is Christ the Lord and Christ the King. Thank you for what he has done, and we pray that we would cultivate spiritual fruit in Christ, cultivate spiritual fruit in the Word, and cultivate spiritual fruit by the Holy Spirit. And so help us to do this. Help us to do so in our lives. Help us to do so in the various situations you've given to us. Help us to be more loving and joyful and peaceful and long-suffering. 
Help us to be more kind and good and faithful. Help us to be more gentle and help us to have more self-control. And if we boast in anything, may we boast in Christ Jesus and his cross. And thank you that in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but new creation. And thank you, we are that new creation now in him. And we pray that this would give us the encouragement we need as we go into the world. Help us, we pray, in the name of Christ.